Hello and welcome to Bad Gays, a podcast all about evil and complicated queer people in history. My name's Hugh Lemmy, I'm a writer and author. And I'm Ben Miller, a writer, researcher and member of the board of the Schwulis Museum in Berlin. And last week we talked about the charming turned charmless man, Morrissey. Who are we talking about this week, Ben? Well, before I introduce our subject this week, um, I want to talk about something that we haven't spoken a lot about on this show, and that is parenting. In the U.S. legal context, parenting and parental rights have long been a central cause of the gay rights movement. And we've talked a lot of stuff on this show about the project of gay rights as such, but it is important to think about the many people who gay rights protections have protected, and the homophobic, never mind misogynistic, and patriarchal horrors of family law in the United States that the project of gay rights has to some extent attempted to ameliorate. So in the United States, a legal parent is the person who is recognized by law as a child's parent. They have the legal right to custody of that child, to make decisions about that child's health, education, and well-being. Legal parents are obligated to support children financially. In many states, people who are not legal parents do not have any decision-making authority in those areas, even if they live with a child and function as the parent. They can't do things like consent to medical care, approve school field trips, have rights to custody or visitation if something happens to the legal parent or to their relationship with the legal parent. They cannot get health insurance through their child uh, for their child through their employer, things like that. And in the absence of a will, of course, they cannot pass property or benefits on to a child. So when a legally married couple has a child, they are both automatically presumed to be the legal parents of the child, which means that if they get divorced, they both remain legal parents unless a court for some reason terminates one or both of their parental rights. Same-sex couples who could not get legally married in the United States until 2015 have had to fight to establish these legal parental relationships. So to think through why this matters, let's imagine a lesbian couple named Nancy and Deb who meet at the Michigan Women's Music Festival in 1985 and move in together two weeks later. Um, and after a sperm donation from their best Judy, Todd, Nancy gives birth uh, to their first child, Alex. Now, if Nancy gets sick, if Nancy gets cancer, if Nancy, God forbid, gets hit by a bus, Deb has no legal connection to Alex. Nancy's homophobic parents have the legal connection to Alex, and they will take Alex, and Deb might not even have visitation rights if they don't agree. Um, if Deb, uh, let's say that uh, Nancy's still alive now, thankfully, um, but if Deb takes Alex alone to visit um her parents in Chicago so that Alex can see grandma and grandpa, and Alex gets sick while she's in Chicago and goes to the hospital, um, Deb has no legal right to determine Alex's medical care. Um, Deb can't go into the ICU. Deb can't consent to treatment um, unless you get this thing called a second parent adoption. And so this is where we get to the second parent adoption, which is the most common means by which LGBT non-biological parents in the United States before the introduction of same-sex marriage established a legal re relationship with their children. And so this is a legal procedure by which a co-parent adopts his or her partner's child without terminating the parental rights of the other person. Um, so at the end of the adoption process, the child has two legal parents, and both partners have equal legal status in terms of their relationship to the child. So Deb adopts Alex, and then Deb and Nancy all both have uh, legal rights over Alex. So, same-sex second-parent adoptions have not always been legal. In the United States, same-gender adoption and family building has a legally complex recent history. In the United States, family law is complicated. States, and there are 50 of them, are given a wide berth in terms of how deciding how to set up their rules and regulations. 
1956, the pioneering San Francisco lesbian organization Daughters of Belitis held the first known discussion groups on lesbian motherhood. The first lesbian mothers activist group, the Lesbian Mothers Union, formed in the same area 15 years later. In 1968, Bill Jones became the first single father to adopt a child in California, and one of the first in the nation, although he was advised not to tell social workers he was gay. In 1974, several lesbian mothers and friends in Seattle formed the Lesbian Mothers National Defense Fund to help those in custody disputes, although this often applied to women who came out after having their children and who did not want their lesbianism to be used, as it often was, in court cases as a reason to invalidate their custody or even their vegetation rights. That's right. In many states, women who left their husbands for women in the 1970s were losing access to even see their children under the theory that children should not be exposed to homosexuality. In 1979, a gay couple in California jointly adopted a child for the first time. In the 1970s and 1980s, lesbians began starting families through pregnancy via donated sperm from friends, with some sperm banks beginning to open in the 1980s that catered to lesbian parents. In 1999, Matt Rice became the first trans man to give birth in the modern United States, and the same year, a British male couple had children through surrogacy in California and successfully petitioned to both be on the child's birth certificate. Surrogacy and gay male parenting, and the contradictions and violences of class and gender inherent in these relationships, have gone largely unexamined by the official gay rights movement. In press releases around a recent constitutional case, the Lambda Legal Defense and Education Fund referred to children born by surrogates as, quote, children born abroad to married same-sex couples, thereby totally erasing the labor of commercial surrogacy. These are the perhaps unresolvable tensions of gay family law. On the one hand, queer families have appealed to the idea of legal parentage as separate from biological parentage in order to establish parental rights. On the other hand, these appeals have been founded in establishing and enshrining dyadic, heteronormative same-sex couples as the individual legal parents, rather than following calls during gay liberation and the high period of socialist feminism for collective liberation of children and broader and more flexible understandings of, or even the abolition of, the family. Friend of the show Sophie Lewis's recent book, Full Surrogacy Now, goes into surrogacy, family abolition, and the communization of reproduction in more detail, and is highly recommended to listeners. In a 2009 essay called Queer Kids of Queer Parents Against Gay Marriage, Martha Jane Kaufman and Katie Miles wrote, quote, Queers are sexy, resourceful, creative, and brave enough to challenge an oppressive system with their lifestyle. In the ways that our families might resemble nuclear, straight families, it is accidental and coincidental, something that lies at the surface. We do not believe that queer relationships are the mere derivatives of straight relationships. We can play house without wanting to be straight. Our families are tangled, messy, and beautiful, just like so many straight families who don't fit into the official version of family. We want to build communities of all kinds of families, families that can exist as they do exist without the recognition of the state. End quote. But back to the history of American LGBT family law. In 1985, some same-sex couples began to obtain second-parent adoptions in order to establish children's legal connections to non-biological parents. But even these adoptions would often be invalidated if couples broke up. It wasn't until 1995 that the first state, Wisconsin, established that even after a breakup, the non-biological mother still had the right to visit her second-parent adopted child. When I worked for the official gay rights movement, 
we dealt with flurries of cases of biological lesbian moms who had broken up with their co-parenting partners and were seeking to invalidate the parental rights of the other partners. These were referred to humorously around the office as the evil lesbian cases, because the goal of gay rights has been to enshrine the rights of non-biological second parents as equally valid to those of biological parents. Since family law in the United States works on a case law system, judges have a certain degree of flexibility, and precedent matters. Individual cases in a state or jurisdiction can have a huge impact on how future cases are received. Until very recently, same-sex parenting was highly disapproved of by most Americans. Of those surveyed in 1994, only one in four favored same-sex adoption. From 1994 to 1999, that was one in three. From 2002 to 2008, four in ten. It was only in 2012 that a full majority began to approve the legalization of same-gender adoption. As late as 2004, Jeb Bush, then governor of Florida, was quoted as saying, quote, It is in the best interest of adopted children, many of whom come from troubled and unstable backgrounds, to be placed in a home anchored by both a father and a mother, end quote. In many states, willing same-sex parents were not allowed to adopt children, and they were instead placed in orphanages or in unstable or abusive foster care scenarios. It wasn't until 1997 that the first state, New Jersey, passed a law clarifying same-sex adoption as being legal statewide. In 2010, the last statewide ban on same-sex adoption in Florida was overturned. Many states still ban unmarried couples from adopting, which excluded same-sex couples seeking to adopt entirely until the 2015 Supreme Court decision in Obergefell v. Hodges established a national constitutional right to same-sex marriage. Since then, same-sex adoption and parental rights have been somewhat clarified, but there are still many open issues. As I mentioned earlier, gay breakups provide a unique challenge in family law. Separating same-sex couples could not for many years use the divorce procedures which provided a legal framework for the dissolution of the end of relationships. Those divorce procedures are not necessarily good, and we can imagine and hope for and try to create non-state alternatives for the winding down of these kinds of relationships and uh, accountability around co-parenting after relationships break down, but those divorce procedures do at least provide a way in which, um, through some sort of system with some kind of accountability, there is a system of rules by which a relationship can come to an end. While divorcing straight parents might say terrible things about one another even in front of their children, divorcing straight parents rarely claimed in court, as divorcing lesbians sometimes do, that their ex-partners were literally not their children's parents. So in 1999, seeing this growing problem, the lawyer Mary Bonaudo, who was one of the central figures in the legal fight for same-sex relationship and parenting rights, chaired a series of meetings in Boston, Massachusetts, where I'm from, in which she argued that how relationships end was critical to the gay movement's collective interest. These movements were drafted into a set of principles that was published that year by gay and lesbian advocates and defenders, and shared by and with other LGBT groups. These principles called for LGBT parents and their lawyers to focus on the relationships between parent and children rather than legal labels, to strive to maintain continuity in children's lives, and to consider litigation only when alternatives like mediation failed. The document said, quote, A focus solely on the legal rights of biological or adoptive parents ignores the real relationships of parents and children. It is extremely damaging to our community and our families when we disavow as significant the relationships for which we are seeking legal and societal respect. End quote. And this statement also clarified that seeking to invalidate agreements like co parenting or second parent adoption 
would ultimately undermine the attempt to get a foundation of case law that respected second LGBT parents as though they were true parents. Once again here, the contradictions of gay rights become visible. Non-biological parents can only be given claims to rights over their children by classifying them as the same as quote-unquote true bio-parents, but this represented to its advocates an imperfect attempt to improve U.S. family law. The statement argued that LGBT parents should never argue in court that ex-parents should not have standing to seek custody or visitation because they were not biologically related. Also, we can have there there are uh, there exist many brilliant critiques of the whole concept of bio mom, bio family, biologically related. Um, these are all legal terms, and I'm using them because this is the way that um, this is the terminology and sort of the terminological battleground on which this particular fight was had and proceeded. So I've given this long monologue on second parent adoptions and legal rights to provide background to the story that will close our season, the story of Lisa Miller a woman who gave birth to a child co-parented with her partner, Janet Jenkins, and then left Janet, became a self-proclaimed ex-lesbian, a fundamentalist Christian, sued for single custody of their daughter, and when the courts decided against her, abducted their child and fled the country with the existence of well-connected far-right pastors. Lisa and their daughter Isabella are still missing. I'll repeat this at the end of the episode, along with a description of Isabella, but... Anyone with any information on the whereabouts of Lisa and or Isabella is encouraged to contact the United States National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, 001-800-843-5678. The story of Lisa, Janet, and Isabella begins sweetly. Lisa Miller and Janet Jenkins met at an Alcoholic Anonymous meeting in Virginia in December of 1997. Lisa was 29 and had just left a two-year relationship with a woman. Previously, she had been married to a man. Janet, 33, had just gotten out of a 12-year relationship with a woman. The two fell in love, helped keep each other sober, and started a childcare business together. In 1999, the state of Vermont, long a leader in gay rights issues, for example, since a case called In Regards to the Adoption of BLVB and ELVB in 1993, Vermont had allowed uh, same-parent, second-parent adoption rights. Um... So that Vermont in 1999 adopted civil unions for same-sex couples. In the year of 2000, Lisa and Janet uh, traveled to Vermont and got a Vermont civil union and merged their names, becoming Lisa and Janet Miller Jenkins, and decided to have a child. Lisa decided to bear the child and became pregnant in September of 2001. Janet and Lisa went together to every doctor's visit before birth, and Janet was present at the birth and cut the cord in the spring of 2002. The two women shared all parenting duties. Isabella called Lisa Mommy and Janet Mama. In summer of 2002, the women moved to Vermont, which, as I mentioned, had a good legal climate for same-sex parents. Because of their civil union, which accorded all of the rights of marriage, Janet did not additionally adopt Isabella. Second-parent adoptions are not free, and these women did not have huge amounts of extra money to go around. The couple bought a house together and decided to have a second child. They did not succeed. Unrelatedly, they started to grow apart emotionally. Fourteen months after their move to Vermont, they separated. Initially, this was an amicable separation. Lisa moved back to Virginia and took primary custody of Isabella, but Janet drove every weekend, with her agreement, 500 miles each way to visit the two of them there. She also voluntarily paid child support. Then, Lisa joined a new church in Virginia, 
the Baptist Church in Lynchburg, founded by the Reverend Jerry Falwell. Falwell was an American Southern Baptist pastor, televangelist, and conservative activist, and the founder of the Baptist megachurch in Lynchburg, Virginia. He also founded the Lynchburg Christian Academy and Liberty University, and in 1979 co-founded the Moral Majority. The Moral Majority became one of the largest political lobby groups for evangelical Christians in the United States in the 1980s and 1990s. It promoted itself as being, quote, pro-life, pro-traditional family, pro-moral, and pro-American. And it was credited with delivering two-thirds of the white evangelical Christian vote to Ronald Reagan in the 1980 presidential election. About Martin Luther King, Jerry Falwell once said, quote, I do question the sincerity and nonviolent intentions of some civil rights leaders, such as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who are known to have left-wing associations, unquote. Speaking about the Brown versus Board of Education ruling that we discussed a little bit in the um, episode about Barney Frank, that was the ruling that uh, desegregated United States public education, he said, quote, If Chief Justice Warren and his associates had known God's word and desired to do the Lord's will, I am quite confident that the 1954 decision would never have been made. The facilities should be separate. When God has drawn a line of distinction, we should not attempt to cross that line. Oh, fuck's sake. In 1977, Falwell supported the campaign by um, noted orange juice saleswoman Anita Bryant, which was called Save Our Children, and the campaign was to overturn an ordinance in Dade County, Florida, prohibiting discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. Side note to our viewers, if you ever need to watch something truly heartwarming, look up the video on YouTube of Anita Bryant being pied in the face. It will give you <laughs> happiness and joy and fill you with a benevolent and wonderful spirit towards your fellow men, and you will move out into the world truly singing uh, down to a cellular level with God's love when you watch the pie being smashed am into I, her face. Am I mistaken? Or was she one of the first victims of a glitter bombing? Uh, yes, and the, the, the pieing as well. Yeah. The pieing is the famous one. Um, it really all got in her hair, too. It's just, it was wonderful. Um, so anyway, Falwell condemned homosexuality as being forbidden by the Bible. Uh, Falwell was known by gay rights groups as, quote, the founder of the anti-gay industry. Some quotes by Falwell. He said, quote, gay folks would just as soon kill you as look at you. That's true. He <laughs> he met some of Jerry our, Falwell, maybe. He met some of our evil twinks. Um, he said uh, once of homosexuality, quote, This vile and satanic system will one day be utterly annihilated and there'll be a celebration in heaven. Uh, he did deny saying that, but it is on the record. He regularly linked the AIDS epidemic to LGBT issues, stating once, quote, AIDS is not just God's punishment for homosexuals. It's God's punishment for the society that tolerates homosexuals. When Ellen DeGeneres came out, he referred to her as Ellen Degenerate. Um, hilariously, in February of 1999, in the National Liberty Journal, which is a promotional publication of Liberty University, there was an unsigned article which seems to have been written by Falwell in which he claimed that the purple children's Teletubby character, Tinky Winky, was intended as a sort of secret gay role model and was turning your children gay. Also true. I mean, you know, um, I'm not saying that I saw Tinky Winky at Bearkind last weekend, but I'm, I'm, I didn't. Uh, anyway. You um, saw a Tinky Winky at Bearkind last week. <laughs> Haven't we all? Um, anyway, uh, after September 11th attacks in 2001, Falwell said uh, on the 700 Club, a show run by the fellid, fellow uh, rabid Christo-fascist pastor Pat Robinson, uh, quote, 
I really believe that the pagans and the abortionists and the feminists and the gays and lesbians who are actively trying to make that an alternative lifestyle, the ACLU, People for the American Way, all of them who have tried to secularize America, I would point the finger in their face and say, you helped this happen. End quote. Homosexuality can't me- melt steel beams. In 1999, uh, Falwell declared that the Antichrist would probably arrive within a decade and, quote, of course, he'll be Jewish. So um, that's Jerry Falwell, um, someone who for his entire life was a uh, central figure in the U.S. Republican Party and whose son uh, is now one of Donald Trump's most active uh, supporters because if anybody in the world embodies uh, good, simple Christian morality, especially sexual morality, it is Donald Trump. So I think um, I think it was Christopher Hitchens who, upon being asked to comment on Falwell's death, said, if you gave him an enema, he could be buried in a matchbox. <laughs> Christopher Hitchens uh, went bad at the end of his life, but he did have a way with a phrase, it must be said. So... After joining Falwell's church, Lisa began to be resentful of Janet's influence in her and her daughter's life. She asked her lawyer to argue that because Janet was not biologically or adoptively related to Isabella, she had no visitation rights. Her lawyer, following those glad guidelines, refused, and so Lisa secured representation from a fundamentalist Christian legal advocacy organization connected to Liberty University called Liberty Council. The Southern Poverty Law Center has listed Liberty Council as an anti-LGBT hate group, a designation the group has disputed. Some of Liberty Council's track record. In 2000, they threatened a lawsuit against a public library in Jacksonville, Florida, after the library held a party featuring readings from Harry Potter books, and at the party, uh, Hogwarts Certificate of Accomplishment plaques were handed out to children who attended. Um, Matt Staver, uh, one of their lawyers who later became... Lisa's lawyer said, quote, witchcraft is a religion, and the certificate of witchcraft endorsed a particular religion in violation of the First Amendment's Establishment Clause. In December of 2005, uh, Liberty Council threatened to sue an elementary school in Dodgeville, Wisconsin, for changing the lyrics of Christmas songs to make them more secular. And in 2003, they submitted a brief to the United States Supreme Court in the case of Lawrence versus Texas, supporting a Texas statute that criminalized sodomy. He also, Liberty Council has defended reparative therapists. It called laws, laws banning uh, gay conversion therapy, quote, one of the greatest assaults on children and families that has risen in recent times. Uh, and more recently, they've joined other American hate activists like Scott Lively in promoting anti-gay legislation in Uganda, Romania, and Russia. Like many far-right fundamentalist organizations, it has a complex relationship with the Republican Party, which often uses these organizations to um, establish a new right wing it can then slowly move towards. In 2016, Liberty Council issued a press release celebrating the Republican Party's platform as essentially in concordance with all of its goals. So by the time Lisa engaged Liberty Council as as her attorney, she declared herself a born-again Christian and no longer a lesbian. Quote, when I left Janet, I left the homosexual lifestyle and drew closer to God. I do not want to expose Isabella to Janet's lifestyle. It goes against all my beliefs. I am raising Isabella to pattern herself after Christ. That's my job as a Christian mom. Homosexuality is a sin. She wrote on a blog she kept at the time called Only One Mommy that her legal case was, quote, a warning of what will happen if Christians do not unite as the homosexuals groups have. I may lose my biological daughter to Janet, 
a practicing lesbian, because I have glorified God through obeying his commandment to bring up my child for the Lord. This began a long legal battle. Just as organizations like GLAD and Lambda Legal were attempting to create case law around family creation and separation that protected same sex couples, organizations like Liberty Council were attempting to use case law to block relationship recognition and legal rights. Remember, at the time, the president was the born-again Christian who claimed he talked to God, George W. Bush. Lisa's lawyer at Liberty Council, Matt Staver, who we mentioned earlier, warned in his 2004 book, Same-Sex Marriage, Putting Every Household at Risk, that, quote, homosexual groups are aggressively targeting children and youth. If same-sex marriage is legalized, more children will be caught in the crosshairs of what amounts to a sexualized political revolution, end quote. It was also in 2004 that the Republican Party put uh, same-sex marriage bans, constitutional bans, on the state, on the ballot, rather, in several crucial swing states to drive evangelical turnout and support the re-election of George W. Bush, and I would like at some point to see an accounting of the number of uh, suicides that were caused at that time, teen suicides, of young LGBTQ kids who killed themselves as people that I know came very close to doing at that time because of the way that their lives and their relationships were being spoken about by um, these politicians on television who were doing it for the most craven uh, reasons of personal and personal financial gain. Um, It is truly uh, one of the most horrifying things that was recently done, and anybody attempting to rehabilitate the political strategists who came up with those strategies, um, we know what to think about them. Anyway, um, the Liberty Council's case in Vermont back at this time in 2004, didn't go so well. In 2004, a Vermont judge demanded that Lisa allow Janet to visit her daughter. Lisa refused, and the judge held her in contempt and made her pay fines. Lisa would have to pay fines to various courts for blocking visitation on and off for years, and it's thought that various fundamentalist organizations may have supported her financially in making those payments. When things went poorly in Vermont court, Liberty Council tried Virginia. And here we can see some of that complexity of American family law that I was talking about earlier. For a while, the case became split between Vermont and Virginia. Virginia had statutes at that time that made civil unions completely null and void in terms of recognition in that state. Additionally, the 1996 Federal Defense of Marriage Act, signed by Bill Clinton, specifically allowed any state to refuse to recognize the same-sex marriages of civil unions from another state, and also stopped federal recognition of those marriages. Normally, uh, even if states have somewhat different marriage law, like around age or uh, stuff like that, um, those marriages are still recognized across state lines. So Virginia courts, based on Virginia law, ruled that Lisa was Isabella's only mother and that she could deny Janet access to her child. Based off of that victory, Liberty Council argued to the Vermont State Supreme Court that they should honor Virginia's judgment denying Janet her parental rights, because uh, the child was a resident of Virginia and not Vermont. This kind of court shopping for sympathetic forums for a case is common in the U.S. legal system, although in parental kidnapping cases, a 1980 law called the Parental Kidnapping Protection Act specifically invalidated court shopping in this kind of case. In other words, once you picked a court system for this kind of dispute, you're supposed to stick with it. And so based on that law, the Vermont Supreme Court rejected Liberty Council's argument ruling that Janet was Isabella's parent. After some back-and-forthing between Vermont and Virginia courts, in which the Virginia Court of Appeals agreed finally that it was Vermont and not Virginia courts that were the appropriate forum for this case, the case wound its way back to family court in Vermont in 2007 with, at the end of the day, 
Lisa holding principal custody, Janet having weekend visitation rights, and a $9,200 fine on Lisa for disobeying earlier visitation rulings. Between 2004 and 2007, Janet was not allowed to see Isabella. The judge at that time also warned that he would reconsider custody if Lisa was, uh, continued to interfere with the relationship between Janet and Isabella. And during all of this, the culture wars about this case ramped up. This was a case that was used for fundraising purposes by both gay rights groups and by the Liberty Council. Quote, I can't recall a more emotionally charged legal case than the one involving Lisa Miller and her precious daughter Isabella, Staver wrote in one fundraising letter for the Liberty Council. Quote, what makes it even more intense is the fact that every American family has a huge stake in its outcome. After reading this letter, you will see homosexual activism in a whole new light. And the pitch letter went on to accuse Jenkins of having forced Isabella to take baths with her, a claim of which there was no evidence. And this is the blood libel, and has always been the blood libel against queer people, is that we abuse children, especially that we abuse our own children. There is no evidence to suggest that it is true in any greater degree than anybody else. Um, and again, that people who propagate this vile nonsense and in so doing lead to um, tragedy and death and suicide, um, they may think that they're going to heaven, but I know what I think about their morality. So in January of 2009, Lisa again started blocking visits. The Vermont judge again held her in contempt of court, but did give her another chance if she was going to allow more visits. And it's important to note here how even this sympathetic Vermont judge allowed this woman to keep primary custody of this kid for so long, even though she was repeatedly in contempt of court. And so this shows yeah. that even a sympathetic judge is um, giving what I would consider to be too much um, priority to biological, quote-unquote, family. Uh, in August, the judge warned that he was going to transfer custody to Janet if there wasn't a visit, and he ordered that uh, Janet be allowed to see her in late September. Um, all in all, in 2008 and 2009, Janet saw Isabella for a total of 48 hours. That fall, in a written appeal to the judge, uh, Lisa wrote, quote, What is at stake is the health and well-being of an intelligent, delightful, beautiful seven-year-old Christian girl. Isabella knows from her own reading of the Bible that marriage is between a man and a woman. She cannot have two mommies, that when I lived the homosexual lifestyle, I sinned against God, and that unless Janet accepts Christ as her personal savior, she will not go to heaven, end quote. I think that Lisa, in exposing Isabella to this nonsense, is committing child abuse, but again, you can make your own conclusions. So, the September visit did not take place, and so the judge held Lisa in contempt again and transferred custody to Janet. And at this point, Lisa disappeared. She had made a secret plan, and she had made this plan with two men, Philip Zadiades, the owner of a conservative Christian direct mail list service in Waynesboro, Virginia, who owned a beach house in Nicaragua, and Kenneth Miller, I was a pastor at the Beachy Amish Mennonite sect in Stewart's Draft, Virginia. Which raises the question, who were these men and how did she meet them? Uh, one possible answer is that one of Zadiety's daughters, Virginia, works at Liberty Law School, where Lisa's attorney was the dean. Um, her attorney, uh, Matt Staver, claimed that he had never discussed the case with Zadiety's and said that they were just as surprised as anyone else when she disappeared. Yeah, sure. So on September 21st, 2009, Lisa and Isabella left home. They left behind their belongings and a family of pet hamsters to die without food or water. Isabella was seven. They drove south to meet Kenneth Miller, who, according to later court documents, gave them Mennonite attire to wear on their journey. He then drove them later that night north to Buffalo, New York. Just after midnight, Lisa and Isabella crossed into Canada at Niagara Falls and were met by another Mennonite pastor, who put them on a plane to Mexico City where they then continued to El Salvador and Nicaragua. 
Prosecutors believe that Lisa Miller took the name Sarah after her disappearance, while Isabella adopted the name Lydia. The plane tickets were bought at Kenneth Miller's request by the mother-in-law of yet another Mennonite pastor, and that woman was then reimbursed with a money order from Zodiades. Meanwhile, Janet began to be worried she hadn't heard anything from her child. And the conservative activist Linda Wall later remembered that when she entered Lisa's house three weeks later and found the dead hamsters, she thought, quote, wow, congratulations, Lisa, you did it. There you go, folks. Pro-life. So in Nicaragua, as the investigation later revealed, uh, Lisa and Isabella were met by Timothy Miller, a Mennonite pastor who drove them into the interior town of Hinotega. I'll note here that um, Timothy Miller is not related to Lisa Miller, who is not related to Kenneth Miller, and none of them are related to me. The two later moved back to Managua, where Lisa homeschooled Isabella. The tight-knit Mennonite community in Nicaragua shielded Lisa and her daughter from police. In April of 2011, after police tracked phone calls and records, Timothy Miller was arrested in Washington, D.C. on a visit home and was charged with aiding a kidnapping. After that moment, there has been no reported sighting of Lisa and Isabella. Federal prosecutors ended up dropping their charges against Timothy Miller in exchange for testimony against Kenneth Miller and Zodiades. Lisa Miller's former lawyer in Virginia, again a respected part of right-wing American society, had this to say, quote, It's sad that in America a woman was faced with this choice. The court overstepped its bounds, calling someone a parent who is not a parent and turning a child over to a person who lives contrary to biblical truths. Because if there's one simple truth in the Bible, it's that you should try to steal your child away from one of their parents. Recent legal cases have established links between Zodiades and Liberty Council that make it seem unlikely, at least to this reader, that Liberty Council had no foreknowledge of this plan. While Liberty Council has consistently denied any involvement, according to the Southern Poverty Law Center, quote, Evidence at Zodiades' trial shows a flurry of communications that implicate Zodiades' daughter, Victoria Hyden, who is an employee of Liberty School of Law, where Liberty Council's Matt Staver worked as dean for years, Miller's Liberty Council attorney, Rena Lindevaldson, who took over as Liberty School of Law's dean when Staver left in October 2014, and even Liberty Council as an organization. Listeners who are not from the United States, this is a good moment to warn you, if you see liberty in the name of a thing in the United States, <laughs> it's probably a good reason to run away screaming. Um, so again, uh, Matt Staver denied this. He said in a sworn affidavit in 2012, quote, I have never counseled Lisa Miller to disobey court orders. I have never counseled or encouraged Lisa Miller to flee from the state, the country, or in the reach of any court or law enforcement, nor have I counseled or encouraged anyone to assist her in doing so. I have always maintained and continue to maintain that I had no knowledge that Lisa Miller would flee and continue to have no knowledge of her whereabouts. Kenneth Miller is currently serving a 27-month sentence in a federal prison in Vermont. In 2012, as jury selection for his trial began, the right-wing activist Brian Fisher of the American Family Association tweeted, quote, Head of Underground Railroad to deliver innocent children from same-sex households goes on trial. We need an Underground Railroad to deliver innocent children from same-sex households. The year that he made that profoundly ignorant statement, um, Fisher had most of the Republican presidential candidates as guests on his radio show with the exception of Mitt Romney, who wasn't invited because Fisher um, hates Mormons almost as much as he hates Jews and gays and everyone else. Uh, other statements made by Fisher, who again uh, invited all these wonderful presidential candidates onto his radio show, and they went gladly, include, quote, superstition, savagery, and sexual immorality morally disqualified Native Americans from sovereign control of American soil, end quote. Quote, 
Welfare has destroyed the African-American family by offering financial rewards to women who have more children outside of wedlock, thereby incentivizing fornication rather than marriage, and creating disastrous social consequences of people who rut like rabbits, end quote. Quote, Homosexuality gave us Adolf Hitler, and homosexuals in the military gave us the brown shirts, the Nazi war machine, and six million dead Jews, end quote. He was demoted from his official role at the American Family Association in 2015 after complaints of anti-Semitic comments, but still hosts a radio show for their network. The American Family Association is central to right-wing politics in the United States and regularly hosts Republican candidates and elected officials. It, too, is classified as a hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center. Bunch of assholes. Philip Zediades was convicted in 2017 and sentenced to three years in prison for his role in the kidnapping. He later claimed on Fisher's radio show that his prosecution was, quote, collusion between the White House, the Department of Justice, and the pro-homosexual radical groups. Zodiades' direct mail company sent over 100 million pieces of mail that, quote, exposed Obama's illegitimacy in terms of being president, end quote. So he's also a birtherist. Lisa Miller is still at large. Isabella Ruth Miller Jenkins is still missing, and Janet Jenkins is still waiting to someday be reunited with her daughter. Isabella would now be 17. Images of her and Lisa are linked in the show notes, along with age-progressed photos. And again, anyone with any information on the whereabouts of Lisa and Isabella is encouraged to contact the United States National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. They can be found online or at 001-800-843-5678. We're on Season 3 of our show, and we can't believe how much support we get from our listeners. Thank you so much to those of you who already support our Patreon. This season, we've launched a new website at badgazepod.com. There you can find our back catalogue of episodes, a link to support us on Patreon, and t-shirts. Beautiful t-shirts that say Bad Gaze or Evil Twink Energy in black on white or white on black. They cost 20 euros plus shipping, and 2 euros from each purchase goes to The Outside Project, a grassroots group that has organized a collectively run community LGBTIQ plus crisis and homeless shelter and community center, the first of its kind in the UK. And for our Patreon donors, we're adding new levels. For $5 a month, we'll send you our monthly newsletter of recommended reading, and high levels get free shirts. Thanks so much for your support. Again, all that good stuff, Patreon, t-shirts, episode archive, is available at badgazepod.com and linked in the show notes. That's badgazepod.com. Um, what a horrifying story, and I, I just feel so much for Janet. I mean... Um to be put through all that and to lose contact with your daughter for all that time and you know go through that entire legal procedure and to see your life be pulled apart like that must be awful um do we know like what what was the sort of impetus behind um behind lisa's um sort of move towards being an ex-gay and especially the religious aspect we don't at all i mean i think two things are true right um Gay conversion therapy doesn't work, right? Gay conversion therapy is abuse, and ex-gays aren't, right? At the same time, um, people have a kind of sovereign right to understand and experience and um, move through their own sexuality and their own identity as they see fit. Um, so, you know, I think if if uh, Lisa, after her divorce, had, had pursued relationships with men, had married a man... Um, as she had been in relationships with at least one man before um, this relationship with Janet, uh, you know there would certainly be nothing necessarily wrong with that. There would also nothing be nothing necessarily wrong with her um, being a Christian. Um, the problem comes in this determination to 
um, invalidate the, I think, very clear co-parent status of Janet. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I mean, it's a good place now maybe to... um to reiterate that the, the title "Bad Gays" is a is a is a provocation for dis- a discussion. You know that it does. We're not necessarily inferring anything specific about people's sexuality in that, that way. Yeah, although Lisa did identify as a lesbian for some yeah, portion yeah. of her life. I mean, she was you know she I think moving to Vermont with somebody and buying a house with them and and a, you know having a child where their co parents is kind of some you know people just love Bernie Sanders that much. <laughs> And um, and you said there's just been no there's been no sighting of them since. No, the trail went cold, and the trail went cold in uh, Nicaragua. Uh, they're thought to be living amongst Mennonites there. There's a fairly large uh, population of uh, white American Mennonites in Nicaragua. That's why it's thought that they're still there because um, Mennonite communities tend to be somewhat uh, closed off from the outside world. Um, they're a good place to hide if you want to hide. They're a good place to to be a traditional Christian if you want to be a traditional Christian. Um, but yeah, no one's seen no one's seen uh, Stammer's turn to them. And again, um, this is now um, ten years ago when they disappeared. More than ten years ago. So uh, Janet has not seen her daughter since she was uh, seven years old, and she's now seventeen. And do we know? Um, I mean, I just feel for Janet. Has Janet managed to rebuild her life and move on, or do you not know? Well, Janet has gotten married again to another woman, um, and still hopes to someday be reunited with her daughter. And another thing you mentioned that I thought was fascinating was that despite this constant uh, repetitions of this contempt of court, um, there still seemed to be this idea that the judge, the judge was um, even in trying to hold her responsible, was still allowing her to have custody. Do you think um, if these had been a, a sort of heterosexual um, bio parents, that a partner who was the partner who was doing that would have? retained custody for so long? Well, I'll start by saying that I'm not a lawyer um, and I'm not a family lawyer. Uh, my sense of it is that it may have had less to do with their being gay and more to do with the fact that Lisa was the bio mom. I think even if it was Lisa and Jeff and Lisa was doing the same stuff, it's entirely possible that they would have, the courts would have kind of presumed that um, that Lisa is the better custodial parent and there is this kind of I mean, it comes out of patriarchy, right? This idea that, you know, women are sort of bio mothers specifically are kind of uniquely suited to uh, to bear children, to have children, what have you. I will say that courts are loath, notoriously loath to um, end parental rights. So uh, even in cases where parents have uh, criminal records, even in cases sometimes where there's um, domestic abuse between the parents uh, even if uh, that's taken into account in a custody battle, the idea that it would end visitation, the idea that it would end visitation rights totally is really kind of out there. Um, and even when Lisa was, you know, in contempt of court and doing all this stuff, um, you know, not complying with rulings, even as she was form shopping, trying to get the, trying to get it into a better, uh, to, to a better conclusion or a conclusion that she liked better. Um, you know, uh, during that time, she's not complying with the original. Uh, with the original court rulings, but that final ruling uh, that Janet should have custody of Isabella, um, what it said was the reason that we're doing this, really reason the ruling's going down this way is because this is what's going to ensure that Isabella has access to both of her parents, mm. right? That living with Janet will mean that she is still able to see Lisa, 
but um, if she lives with Lisa, she will not be able to see them both. So what the courts really want to do is not break up families, quote unquote. Um, and again, when you're talking about queer families, you just get to this weird system where all of this stuff kind of breaks down, right? To try to, uh, in 20 years, uh, remove the patriarchal assumptions um, that are hundreds of years old from family law and from American family law, which descends from uh, British family law in most cases, um, is a difficult task. And so it, you, you end up, you know, all these complications and contradictions uh, in terms bubble up and kind of overflow. And uh, you end up with these situations like this one where um, even before uh, Lisa takes the sort of uniquely evil position of actually abducting her daughter, right, there's still this kind of complicated legal battle because everyone has to figure out what all of this stuff even means or how to even make meaning in a fundamentally patriarchal and misogynist legal system uh, over the idea of uh, how to sort of handle a queer family. Um, I mean, I think that you don't... Uh, while I am in total support of these various kind of gay rights advances, right? Advances like uh, fully legal uh, second parent adoption or same-sex marriage or civil unions. I think ultimately, um, if you want to queer family law, we will have to actually um, either, you know, in, the, in a less radical sense, uh, actually think about ways that you can get legal recognition for families that have different shapes, um, for families where um, regardless of the gender of the parents, we're not assuming a sort of heteronormative dyad uh, with property over its own children, uh, with domain over its own children as the kind of um, sole uh, or enshrined um, legal family unit. Uh, thinking more radically, um, you know, how do you imagine queer families without state recognition? How do you imagine systems of community accountability? How do you imagine systems of um, self-governance, how do you imagine ways in which people can have families, can have children, can have conflict mediation, um, can hold one another uh, accountable, uh, can kind of manage those relationships through uh, difficult emotional territory like breakups or like uh, moving apart emotionally without um, relying on these kinds of crude state interventions and especially without relying on crude state interventions which happen on fundamentally patriarchal and misogynist terms even if those uh, patriarchal and misogynist terms have been somehow uh, technically made gender neutral or made accommodating of heteronormative uh, same-sex dyad parents. Yeah, um, yeah, that's a fascinating response. I mean, I think, and I think it's something that's actually come up a fair bit this season, and maybe because we're ending the season now, we can talk about this a little bit, um, is this question of how queerness makes itself visible inside these systems of state recognition. Yeah, or how it's um, it's made visible. So there's a sort of, um, in the discussions we have about whether people are queer or not, there's a sort of Schrodinger's queer going on. And then the, quite often when we come to discuss it, it's only when the uh the uh rubber of um queer life hits the road of the legal system or uh, of that 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 these things get in, enshrined historically and or encoded know, historically as as things that have happened in sexuality sexuality historically um becomes part of a historical record upon meeting the legal system right and this is why oftentimes these bad gays bad queers um, provide such an interesting 
uh, and insightful uh, lens into these different kinds of snapshots, these moments in queer history, because um, these are often the kinds of people who end up interacting with systems of state power in precisely, precisely the way that do leave um, archival records through which we can go searching. So, Ben, um, Lisa Miller, bad gay, not bad gay, bad, not gay? Bad gay. Bad ex-gay. Uh, bad ex-gay, uh, evil lesbian, evil ex-lesbian, whatever you want to call her. Um, really somebody who, uh, regardless of whatever pain she may have been going through around her own sexuality or her own identity, um, devoted herself to uh, inflicting that pain on as many other people as possible and that's another thing that I think we've noticed as a theme throughout this season is uh, that bad gays often attempt to do just that. And so that's why I thought she was a good way to close this season out. So, Ben, um, if people want to le- learn more about the Lisa Miller case, um, do you have any sources? I do, absolutely. Um, so for a really comprehensive, very comprehensive, it was written by lawyers, um, history of uh, the legal recognition of LGBT families in the U.S., the National Center on Lesbian Rights has a... A PDF uh, that is linked in the show notes. There's also an article from Family Equality called A Very Brief History of LGBTQ Parenting. Um, a lot of the specifics on the case itself came from the chapter about the case in a book called The Right to Be Parents, LGBT Families, and the Transformation of Parenthood by Carlos A. Ball. Um, we'll link to that Queer Kids Say No to Marriage essay as well, um, and several articles by Eric Eckholm from the New York Times about the case um, that are linked in the show notes, as well as a report on the case from the Southern Poverty Law Center, again, also linked in the show notes. And so that being said, this unfortunately does bring us to the conclusion of our third season. Um, but don't be sad because season four is on its way coming later this year. Uh, in between, we will have, as always, more special guest episodes talking about um, evil and complicated queers from history that uh, we might not have gotten around to on our own or that we might want some outside expertise in, um, in talking about. Uh, and we also encourage you, if you have uh, bad gays, bad queers, bad lesbians, bad trans folks that you uh, want us to talk about, uh, please do get in touch um, you can get in touch through our website, badgazepod.com, where you can also find a link to our Patreon, our beautiful t-shirts, and an episode archive if you really need to hear us in your ears uh, more than you already have. Um, you can follow the show on Twitter at badgazepod. You can follow me on Twitter at BenWritesThings. And you can follow me on Twitter at Hugh Lemmy. Or you can subscribe to Hugh's newsletter, Utopian Drivel, at hugh.substack.com. If he won't plug it, I will. Until next season, thanks so much, and we'll see you. Bye. Bye. Bad. 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 Bad.